It's November 30th, 2014. Our message today is going to be called Fine Linen and First Century Weddings. I wanted to talk to you real quickly, bluntly, however you might say it, directly uh, about some things I feel like the Lord told me during worship. Uh, Steph, put, put Genesis 1-3 on the screen. Sometimes our lives become fairly complicated. And the devil's a master at complicating your life so that particularly decisions that have to do with the kingdom feel like there's so many variables. And I just wanted to tell you that the Bible, by the time you get to the third verse, says this, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was, come on, what was the light? The light was? One more time, the light was. And he separated the light from the darkness. Any decent rabbi in the first century would tell you that the rest of the Bible is commentary on that verse. The ways of the kingdom were always referred to in terms of light. The New Testament writers picked up on this and called us children of the light. The ways that were outside the kingdom, no matter how noble it might appear, No matter how expedient it might be, the Bible called darkness. I want you to hear in maybe the most complicated chapter of one of the most theological books in all of the New Testament. Can anybody say Paul was a smart guy? Okay, look at Romans 7 and the 14th verse. Put that on the screen for us. We know that the law is... The law is... Come on, y'all. The law is... Kind of like the light's good. The law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. So therefore, we we have a bit of a problem. There's a kingdom that's designed for us and it's good. And we are not innately good. If you sit in here today and believe that you're a pretty good person who happened to add Jesus to your life, you are deceived in the worst way. Because you can spend your entire life believing that you are serving Jesus And you're not actually doing it. You're serving yourself. The core of the gospel is that the kingdom is good and you are not. And Jesus will credit you with his goodness that you do not possess. His righteousness that you did not possess so that you can participate in his kingdom. Look at Colossians, the first chapter and the 21st verse. Once you were alienated from God. Somebody say alienated. I'm going to tell you there was no czar at the time that could sign an executive order and wipe away your alienation. No matter what man's efforts were, there were not enough executive orders in the world to wipe this away. Your very best efforts could not put you any closer to the king of kings. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We don't mind saying that the world's evil. We don't mind talking in terms of societies trending the wrong way. But people get good and offended when you say your behavior is evil. I want to tell you, this pastor's behavior has often been evil. But I've been rescued from that behavior. I've been taken from darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. It was not naturally mine. I, in fact, was an enemy of it in my mind. 
but it's been changing my mind in changing my nature. That's not really that complicated, is it? Light, darkness, in the kingdom, out of the kingdom, righteous kingdom and evil behavior. How about this one? Go to 1 John 1 and pick the fifth verse. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is in Him. There is no darkness at all. You need to understand this. There's no equivocation. God does not vacillate. He doesn't get it right on some days and not other days. He is always right. There's nothing in Him ever that's wrong. So if there's a problem, whose end is it on? Ours. If somebody needs to change, who is it? It's us. This is a truth that's declared from Genesis 1-3 all the way through 1 John, one of the last books in the Bible. This is a message we've heard from Him and declared to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness. This word walk here implies your actions. It implies habitual it, it's where you're spending your time. Yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from sin. One of the best ways to know that you're walking with Him is how you're walking with each other. And when you're walking with those who are walking with Him and you feel that sense of fellowship, that sense of connection, it's a sign that you've been purified from sin. Because sin not only separates you from God, it separates you from everybody else as well. As Cain, he became a restless wanderer on the earth. That is the heart of the gospel message. So when we come together in worship, when we come together to to learn the Word, to put it into practice. This is what we're doing. We're trying to run from the darkness and spend our time in the light with each other. And then, in this church, what we have practiced in here, we want to perform out there. So when we get outside these walls, we do the very same things that we were doing inside these walls. We want to live in the light. Can you say amen to that? Don't settle for any level of darkness in your life. Don't settle for any level of darkness in the lives of the people around you. That compromise will ultimately separate you from God and you from everyone that you love. There is nothing worse than dying lonely and bitter. And it happens more often than not. When they put your body in the ground, Let there be a marker that says, where this one went in the ground, he's coming out resurrected because he was a member of a kingdom that was not of this earth but is coming on this earth. The same substance that was in Jesus is in this one. And how do you know? Because we had fellowship with him and we could feel it. We felt Jesus in them. This is the goal. Now, sometimes theology feels complicated. Sometimes life feels complicated. But the Bible is not all of that complicated. It contains some things that are at first glance hard to understand. But the more you look at the original culture, the more that you look 
at the way that it was communicated, the terms of the Bible were meant to mirror your everyday life so that just as simply as God separated light and darkness and called light good and the darkness is something you're not supposed to have a part of, he communicated the rest of his truth in those kind of simple terms. Do you want to hear about them? Did you know that the Bible is a wedding story? How beautiful is that? Turn with me to Isaiah 62. Fine linens in first century weddings. Say there when you're there. Girls, if you're sitting next to a guy and he starts to doze, jab him in the ribs. You're going to want him to know this. In Isaiah 62, starting in verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name. Somebody say new name. name. Come on, girls. When do you get a new name? Well, I've seen some monumentally bad marriage names. Like, can you imagine? Some of you are laughing and I hadn't even said a name. I'm just going to let you imagine. You will be called by a new name. Our marriage name is not a bad name. It's a good name. It's a name that's above every name. It's not just the way it sounds. It's everything that it represents. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hezbah which of course means my delight is in her. And your land, Beulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so your sons will marry you. This word sons means builder. Uh, The sons of a business might build a business. The sons of a family build a family. And so when sons is plural, it means builder. Let's think of it that way. As a young man marries a maiden, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. A new name, a reversal of fortunes, no longer desolate, no longer outcast. God marrying his people. Is that good news? How do you feel when you see engagements announced? How does that make you feel? I mean, have you ever known, say, a stylish bachelor that delighted in people? I mean, you enjoyed being around him. He enjoyed being around you. And you thought somewhere there is a perfect match for a guy like that. And then you began to wonder when you saw people come in and out, I wonder who that could be. Has anybody ever seen couples like that? This is a church where we have weddings pretty frequently. Lately, we're having babies all of the time. I was at dinner last night, and we have a video from dinner last night I would like you to see. We're taking marriage classes because we've been talking about marriage. But um, I have officially... And I wanted to say before family and friends tonight, from the bottom of my heart, I love you. And I ask you, would you marry me? 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 Would you mar
Give me my wife, Mary. So let me ask you, did Mary look happy? In fact, Mary Curtis, could y'all stand up and wave to the congregation? Amen. Guys, you ought to be as happy about your relationship with the Lord as these two are happy about their relationship with each other. Uh, the part of the video that we didn't show you is Curtis also spoke really loving words to Mary. In fact, he framed them so that she could keep them forever. Oh, that a bridegroom would write down his word, that it would be eternal, that it would be kept forever so that you would constantly be reminded how he thinks of you. Do we have a groom like that? See, we do. Turn with me in Isaiah 62 to verse 6. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give Him no rest till He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Bible speaks of Jerusalem and Israel as the bride of, of God and says, listen, I've posted watchmen to shout this to the universe, to continue to proclaim it day and night, to proclaim it. In fact, don't sleep, don't slumber, proclaim the message. God wants to have union with His people. Now, why is it that we get excited? Does Curtis and Mary's wedding really affect your life? I mean, you'll put it on a calendar, you'll rejoice for them, and then you'll go back to work the next day. Why? What is it that excites you so? Something about their union speaks to the center of your being that we have a greater fulfillment coming. And you're excited because the creation pours forth speech day and night, Psalm 19 says. Have you ever read it closely? Around the fifth verse, he says, in fact, every time the sun comes up, it's like a bridegroom coming for his bride, like a champion running his course. Every time you see a wedding, it's reminding us of the level of intimacy that you're supposed to have with your king. It's reminding us that he is returning and that it's our job to be a watchman on the walls, speaking it everywhere. Now, Curtis and Mary are not married yet. <laughs> There's a young lady at the engagement named Arnett 
And she kept saying, not till May, Curtis. Not till May, Curtis. I have no idea what she was talking about. Then she kept telling me, Pastor, I'm trying to help you out. I'm trying to help you out. No, no, Arnett, God bless you. Curtis is a man of God. Mary's a woman of God. They want to honor the king. And yet there is a natural tension between the time a bride and groom are engaged until they're married. We live in the midst of that tension with our king. Do you see all of the kingdom that you want to see right now? I don't see as much as I want to see, but the little bit that I do see, I sure am excited about. And I'm waiting for the consummation of the ages when the kingdom of God kisses this earth and sets it up forever and ever and ever. Is there not a hallelujah in the house of God today? I feel right with God in my soul and I know what it's like. To be loved by Him. But I've not yet seen the lamb and the lion lay down. I don't see children playing at the hole of the cobra. The world is not yet right with Him. But I stand as a watchman on the wall saying, That day is surely coming. And there is yet more of that message to be proclaimed. Look with me in verse 10 of the same chapter. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. For the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your Savior comes, see his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. The world needs to know. That we watchmen on the wall are proclaiming now is the time that you can be wed to your king. You can be engaged, betrothed to him. If you choose not to do that, you beware how you treat his bride. Because he is coming not only with a reward for his bride, but for recompense with all who have harmed her. If Curtis left Mary in your care until May, and you mistreated Mary, how do you think you would find Curtis when he arrived at your home? The world is in for a wake-up call. Israel is the bride of Christ, and those who have been grafted into her promises stand with her as the bride of Christ. Have you noticed that Israel is beat upon by the world every day and slandered in the United Nations every day? Day And most of the nations of the world have conspired to steal God's pasture lands. There will be a day when he will return. Listen to verse 12. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after. The city no longer deserted. During the time period between the engagement and the fulfillment of the engagement, you can feel a great loss. See, in that moment, Mary was overcome with joy. She covered her face because she just didn't know how to express how good she felt. And then she embraced the man who will be her husband and had to turn her face away. She didn't want to get too excited, too carried away. She's being filmed. All of my heart, it's hard to contain the joy that I feel for my Savior. I wish that you had that kind of joy 
and affection for your Savior. And the day is coming, Mary will face something that's difficult. And all of you who have been married properly face the same thing. What you have proclaimed in the moment and felt the taste of, now you have to endure a long time period where you prepare yourself, but you are not in the reality yet. This is difficult. We love the idea of the warm, fuzzy experience at the altar where we feel a kiss from heaven and righteousness begins to spring up from the earth and faithfulness has looked down from the heavens as the scripture says. But then comes the time period where you have to walk out in reality what has not yet actually happened. And you can feel a sense of loss. One of the reasons that we love to worship it is it's like a renewal of the promise. It's a reminder. It's like every time Mary watches that video between now and the wedding, reminding her the nature of her husband, reminding her the character of the man that she will share her life with. That's the goal. What do we do to prepare ourselves? How do you get ready for such an event? You know, the weddings of the first century were deeply, deeply rooted in Israel's experiences. When you get married, you probably do not think at all about George Washington. See, Americans do not have a wedding experience that is rooted in the founding of our nation. But Jews had a wedding experience that was founded in the beginning of their nation. In Exodus 6.6, we see something that precedes all marriage announcements in Israel. Say there when you were there. A man was especially touched by God. He was given the, the name of God, the covenant name, YHWH. He went as God's representative to God's bride while she was in slavery. You need to remember that when the king of kings finds you, he finds you in slavery or you were never visited by the king of kings. You were not free, doing well, living a pretty good life and just decided to join your life to Jesus. If he didn't find you in slavery, then you were never saved by a great savior. You stand in slavery today and just don't know what you are. In the sixth chapter and sixth verse, therefore say to the Israelites, this is Moses coming to speak to God's bride to be. I am Yahweh. I will bring you out. Come on, say, bring me out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The very first thing that God does is change your way of life. He brings you out from under the slavery that you have lived in. I will free you from being slaves to them. He doesn't just change your manner of life. He doesn't just change your location. He changes the very center of your being so that what you feel is freedom rather than bondage. If your experience with the King of Kings feels like bondage to you, then you have exchanged one kind of shackle for another. I am free in the Lord, free to do the good things that he's called me to do, free to enjoy the things that he's given me, specifically, First Timothy 6 says, for my enjoyment. We don't have a bad God who is punishing you, who wants you to feel bondage. He came to liberate you from bondage. 
I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. There is a price paid for every bride in Israel. Some call it a dowry. In the first century, it was not uncommon to give a young lady coins that she wore as a kind of tiara on her head. It showed value. It showed that you would give up something precious to gain something even more precious. In India, this is still done to this day, but not with coins worn around the head. It's with a ring worn around the neck. If a young lady takes off her wedding necklace while she's cleaning the house, her mother-in-law might say, did my husband marry the wall or did he marry you? (laughs) They never let you take off the sign of your covenant because the betrothed are marked, they're sanctified, they're set apart for their groom. In Exodus 6, he doesn't just redeem them. The best part is verse 7. I will take you as my own people. There were four promises that were given at a time of betrothal. The four promises were, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you and I will take you to be my own. Are you walking in those four promises? Are you still waiting to get from step one to step two or step two to step three? This begins to form the way in which marriages in Jesus' day were thought of. Of course, they didn't stay in Egypt. Where did they go to? Where is their next destination? Speak to me this morning, church. It will be a long service. I know your names. I'm sorry. Where did they go? Desert, wilderness. There is one particular location that they're on their way to. Come on, Bible students. Sinai, oh my goodness, the mountain of the Lord, a place to meet with the Lord. They're leaving their father's house of slavery and they are going to meet with their God. They came out of Egypt with promises. Those promises were what their life would look like if they left their father's house and came to join another. How did God meet with them? Turn with me to Exodus 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, On the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. Three months after Passover puts you firmly at Pentecost or Shavuot. How interesting that the day of God's marriage to His people was the day that He poured out His Spirit some years later. It's very difficult to be married to the King of Kings, but not want His Spirit to define your life. He didn't just reveal himself at Sinai. Look at what he says in the fourth verse of 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Does that sound like their effort was what brought them to God? Or does it sound like God did for them what they could not do for themselves? Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's not uncommon for a Jewish groom to cite the four promises of of the Exodus 6 to his bride-to-be and then finish it with the promise. You will be for me the most treasured of all creation, and I will take you to be my own. 
as we move through this, even the way that God met with his people would later be mimicked in the first century. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, how interesting that God seems to visit on the third day. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Oh my goodness. The Jewish nation recalling these events set up for themselves a canopy that we call a hopa. They were mimicking the dark clouds that God met with His people under. And then two people, just like God and a nation, stood at the foot of that canopy. And there are only two voices were heard as they made their vows to each other. The Ten Commandments, many think of as simply rules to live by. Others say that they've been abrogated by the work of Jesus. I say both are silliness. They are first and foremost wedding vows. It was common for a Jewish bride and a Jewish groom to come to some arrangement of how they would live. That wedding contract was called a ketubah. And it would outline the way in which the bride would treat the groom and the groom would treat the bride. And more than that, the way that their family would interact with the rest of the world. The first four commandments deal with how you relate to God and God alone. You shall have no gods beside me. I don't even want their pictures around. You will not misuse my name because we're going to share it for an eternity. And at least one day a week, I want you to spend it with me and no other. The next six commandments outline the way that the new union would relate to the rest of the world. We will honor our father and mother. We will not commit murder or adultery or steal and so on and so forth. The Jewish nation saw these things and because of it, they implemented them into their lives. When you hear the prophets speak throughout the Bible, sometimes they're speaking of the wedding with God as a future event. Yet other times they're speaking of it in the past. It's because it was a repeating picture over and over and over. As simple as light being separated from darkness was, God wanted His people to understand that His relationship with them was no more or less complicated than every single married couple that they knew. He wanted you to have an example in every household that you faced. And among the households that raised their children well and lived in harmony with each other and were defined by shalom, He said, those people are fit to be pastors. Not the ones that spoke the best. Not the ones that were the best looking. Not the ones that ran their churches like CEOs, but those who could produce godly offspring and raise them up in their home was a picture of the King of Kings. In Hosea 2, starting in verse 19, let us put it on the screen. Obviously, God has already met with His people at Sinai. But because we're going through a repeating story, like a pattern over and over and over, God speaks of something in the future. 
I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and in compassion. He's speaking of it as a future event, something not yet happened. So Israel both saw themselves as married to the Lord and not quite yet married to the Lord. Somewhere akin to the kind of engagements that we have. In Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, in the 8th verse, listen to how God speaks of it as a past event. 16 and verse 8. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Every Jewish man wore a garment according to Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. The Jewish garment was called a talit. It symbolized the commands that were given to the man on Mount Sinai. And because those commands came from Mount Sinai and God had met with His people at Mount Sinai under a canopy, the early Jewish nation decided that when they made vows to each other, the man would take his garment off, they would mount it on four poles, and what was a talit would now become a hopa, a canopy that they would get married under. God says, I spread that over you and I made solemn vows to you. Speaking of the past tense, sometimes it looks as if we're already married to God and other times it looks as if we yet have something to wait for in the future. The other night at the table, it looked as if they were already married. They were so excited. Their friends excited. Curtis' sister Tracy sang a Stevie Wonder song about ribbons in the sky. We watched the family and the friends rejoice as if the day was here. And yet we know the day is still in the future. This is what people are supposed to see every time we worship, every time we speak of the Lord. It's supposed to remind them that the day is here, but not yet here. We're showing them what we're looking forward to. If you drag yourself into church as your religious obligation, this should be as displeasing and unsatisfying to you as a man who drug himself to the altar because he felt obliged to marry the homely little thing at the altar that somebody thought he should marry. Is anybody excited about that prospect? No? No, none of you are looking forward to that. Why would we offer God that kind of devotion? During this time period of tension between the two events, we have an obligation. And it's not an obligation that is a religious obligation of misery. It is one of joy. It is one of excitement. It is one of anticipation. We've tasted of the kingdom and its fullness is coming. And we want the world to know we are the watchmen on the walls. Most of the time when a marriage is referred to throughout the prophets, put Jeremiah 3 and verse 14 on the screen. I want you to hear the way in which it's referred to. It is a call out to the hearts of human beings because you saw husbands and wives everywhere. And so God related himself to the husband in Israel to the wife. He says, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you. 
one from a town and two from a clan and bring you to Zion. The rest of the passage goes on to say, I'll even put shepherds in your midst to teach you what my heart is like. It's a call of a husband saying, we're betrothed. Please don't treat me like this. Let faithfulness rise in your heart. Remember when you expressed your affection to me and me to you. Return to that. I'll even put watchmen on the wall to remind you the event is coming. It's near. Hang on. Brother Alex preached a masterful message out of Hosea 3 where Hosea has to act out a scene as if he's God. And he goes to his wife who has become a prostitute. And he buys time with the prostitute. He purchased that which already belongs to him in the hope that he could win her affection. And the mystery in the story is that it's us. We've already promised, already given our hearts to him. Do we make God buy time with us? Oh, we'll go to church if we have nothing else to do. We'll spend some time in prayer if nothing's on TV. We'll witness if we don't have a choice. These are the voices of religious obligation, not sincere love and devotion. We say that what the Lord wants is faith, and we've defined faith as a creed. Faith is really what you do expressing your love to the Lord that shows that you love Him more than you love yourself. It's what we do to other people when we show that we love the Lord enough to care more about the other people than about ourselves. One of my favorite features of the first century wedding, as I walk you through some of them now, is they began to put all of these things together. They they looked at the way that God picked Moses, and Moses came and arranged the marriage between Israel and God, and they named that role the Shad Khan. The Shad Khan was the matchmaker. How many of you have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Ah, then you may know what I'm speaking of. The event is called a Shadukin. And the idea is that if you really want a good groom and you really want a good bride, let somebody who's experienced at making the match make a match for you. Now, the idea of arranged marriages to us is often somewhat distant. I want to tell you anytime you're witnessing of the goodness of your king, anytime you're telling someone of the love of the Savior, his desire to deliver them from darkness to light, you are trying to arrange a marriage. That is what you're doing. You're not witness, you're not inviting them to church. You're inviting them to become intimate with your king. If you invited them to accept a list of creeds, if you invited them to simply come and pay an unholy fee in an unholy place on what's supposed to be a holy day, you have missed out. You're inviting them to an arranged marriage. The Jews in the first century looked at what happened in Genesis 24. They saw Father Abraham, and Father Abraham did not travel to a distant land to find a bride for his son. Father Abraham, in Genesis 24, 1 through 4, picked someone to go find his bride. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one put in charge of all he had, 
Oh my goodness. He sent a man named Eleazar, whose very name means God the Comforter, out from his household, out from his estate, to go and find a bride for his son. His son was nearing the age of 40, and he wanted him to have a wife. Who was Isaac's wife? Rebecca. Rebecca is such a beautiful name. In Hebrew, it's something akin to irresistible. It, it has the basic meaning that you're ensnared by her. And how did he pick her? He saw her behavior. He saw that she desired, she cared for others more than she cared for herself. <laughs> then he did something very interesting. He arranged a ketubah. Say, what do you mean? They had a little contract. He began to give her gifts. He put gold, you'll love this one, parents, a gold ring in her nose (laughs) and gold bracelets on her hands. Some Bible commentators might even say that she became divinely led and the works of her hands became the works of her husband's hands. What was their ketubah? He exchanged to her words about his master and he assured her of what his character was like though she had never seen him. Oh, what does that sound like? Let me ask you, have you been given words of assurance about our master? Better than that, hear me, you Pentecostals, you Charismatics, has he given you his gifts to seal his ketubah? Oh, man, every time you speak by the Spirit of God, every time you prophesy, every time we see the charismata at work in our midst, these are wedding presents, though the wedding has not yet happened. Oh, my goodness, Mary, can you show me your engagement ring? Is she embarrassed of it? Does she hide it under a bushel? Does she keep her hands in her pockets so nobody knows? Just like what I do in my prayer closets, nobody's business. Or does she run up and tell everybody, I'm engaged? You want to know why the charismata were the initial sign that you had been baptized in the Holy Ghost? It's the engagement ring. It's the way to show the world part of that kingdom that is coming this way has already been invested in my hands and in my mouth. I'm led by the Spirit of God. My hands do the works of God. Don't misunderstand me. I was an alien. I was a foreigner. But He released me from my slavery. He brought me out of that country. He's taking me to be His own. I'm not there yet. But I do have His engagement promises. It's interesting to note that the first chapter of Ephesians recalls some of this language because we live after the time of John Calvin. You read it as predestined. But I imagine the first century audience in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 would see it more like wedding language. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. By the way, that's spiritual gifts that you have, your engagement ring. For He chose us. Oh, Mary, are you excited that He chose you? He wasn't looking somewhere else. 
He's not after somebody else. He chose you. Desired. Married. He chose you. Are you married to somebody inferior? Or superior? To what we see right here. These, this is a beautiful couple, but it's, it's just a shadow of what's coming. He chose you. I, I, I'm going to be honest. I wouldn't have chose me. Can I just be clear with you? Do you ever have days when you look in the mirror and you're like, really? I mean, we understand that the creation is subjected to frustration, but you had to start with my hairline, Lord. God, we, we get what laws of entropy are. We understand we're educated people, but really? He chose you. How does that make you feel? He chose, he didn't choose you because you were in a pretty wedding dress. Where were you when he found you? Slavery. Under the yoke of the Egyptians. You didn't make anything but mud bricks. And he still chose you. Let that sink in for a minute, church. In 2 Corinthians 11, starting in the first verse, the Apostle Paul acts like a Shad Khan. He says this, I hope that you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul had arranged the meeting between the Corinthians and the king of the universe. And so he felt responsible for both of them being exactly what he said they would be. Is that uniquely an apostolic role? Or can you arrange a meeting? And if you arrange the meeting between someone and the king of the universe and they choose each other, do you have any obligation to the concept that they would both be what they've represented themselves as? See, this is why it bothers me so when some call themselves Christians, but I do not detect Christ in them. It's like trying to rip off the Lord of the universe. Do you know why we lift the veil when we kiss? Because there was once a Jew who was deceived about his bride. They wanted to make sure it never happened again. I can assure you Jesus Christ will not be deceived about his bride. He is coming back for a bride. Revelation clearly presents that there is a prostitute who claims to be a bride. But he can tell the difference. Oh my. They moved on from the matchmaker and the ketubah. By the way, have you ever read a parable about some lost coins? Say Luke 15, verse 8. We don't need to go there. I'm sure that you have it memorized. What happens? A young woman lost a coin and she became frantic. And so she searched her whole house. And when she found a single coin, she gets everybody she knows together and they rejoice together because she found the coin. I understand that the nation of Israel is world-renowned for being good with money. But really, a single coin? The implication to the first century audience is that these were the coins that she adorned herself with that said she was going to be married to the groom. 
And she, it would be like losing an engagement ring. And she didn't want to lose the engagement ring. Can you imagine that they're strung together, but maybe because you bumped your head, they broke, and losing one was like losing all? It's just one sin. Nobody will know. No, it's like trying to tear a coin off of your engagement tiara. Don't let anybody steal your crown. Are you catching any of this language, saints? When you moved on from the Shad Khan who arranged your ketubah, you actually went to a ceremony called the erosion. This is very confusing to Western people because we get engaged in restaurants with Stevie Wonder playing in the background and absolutely excellent beef medallions. There were even crab cakes there. It was, it was a special event. I'm getting hungry now. They went to an event. When the groom showed up outside of the bride's house, somewhere like, say, Egypt, he invited the bride-to-be to come and stand under a canopy with him because that's how God did it. It's not the wedding. It's the prelude to the wedding. And when they stand under this canopy, they make vows of what their life will be like until the day of marriage. This is something akin to the actual engagement for us. When Curtis put that ring on Mary's finger, it's a symbol of his pledge to actually marry her. When she accepts it, it's a symbol of her pledge to be faithful, to love him, to anticipate that marriage, and to reject all other suitors. That's what the ring is for. When you enter into the erosion period, do you know how the Jews sealed it? It is such a beautiful thing. They're standing under a canopy that is made of the commandments, the prayer shawl, made into a hopa, and they take vows. And then let me see Matthew 26, verse 27 on the screen. In Matthew 26, in verse 27, it says, Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This was not the last cup. This was the cup of engagement or erosion. A Jewish groom would meet a Jewish bride during their erosion period under a canopy, and when he gave her vows... Incidentally, about redeeming her, about freeing her, about bringing her out, she would drink a glass of wine with him, and he would drink a glass of wine with her. It was a way of saying, we will share the same cup. It was not the actual wedding. That would take place when he took her to be with him in the kingdom. Our king, on a Passover night, a night layered with absolute amazing symbology, chose wedding language for what we call the communion meal. Every time we take communion, we're not just proclaiming his death, we're proclaiming our betrothal to him. We're proclaiming that there is a wedding coming. We are proclaiming that we are no longer in Egypt and slaves, but we are now free and, and been given a ketuba, a, a wedding contract, this book, and been given the gifts of the Spirit to adorn us.
tell me, is that a special thing? Maybe that's why 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says you were bought with a price. His life was the price of your hand in engagement. One of the things that I love about the erosion period the most, and I've studied it before and found it and then forgotten it and then rediscovered it, kind of like the book of the law during Josiah's time. And I think this is probably the most beautiful part. Let's just imagine that Baj and Natalie have become engaged today in love. And because they know that they have to prepare for a wedding that is coming, a second glass of wine that is coming, do you know what the Jews did immediately after they were engaged? They got baptized. They wanted to start their new lives right. If they didn't do it immediately after the erosion period, they did it just prior to the erosion period. Sometimes it's hard to say which comes first. What it is, though, is an outward sign that something inside has changed. And you want the world to know you now stand clean and ready to be joined to the King of Kings. Wouldn't that be a beautiful custom to adopt? The next thing that had to happen was they had to prepare. Do you remember John 14 too? He said, I go away to prepare a place for you. This has led to mountains of misunderstanding. <laughs> Every groom went away to prepare a place. Curtis would right now be building on to his dad's insula, his family dwelling, because Curtis would be a member of the tribe of Israel and their land would be uh, tied to their family, their ancestral lands. So when Curtis got married, he would have to have a suitable place to bring her. She would leave her father and mother's house. She would come to Curtis' ancestral land. That's how that would work. Of course, only the father could tell him when the building had been built to satisfaction because it was still the father's house. Because you Westerners, and me too, often have thought of the father's house as the heavens, we think of going away to be in heaven. Understand these weddings took place in Israel. And Jesus said, I go away and I come back to you. The idea being that the Father's house was actually coming here. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why the Beatitudes say the meek will inherit the earth. We are not going somewhere else. It is coming here. And you know what? It's not done yet. Look around you. What though did the bride do? This was symbolized by so many things. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Say there when you were there. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. <laughs> Nobody laughs. Because you've heard it. And having heard it many times, you think you know what it means. And knowing what it means has taken away some of the surprise. Can you imagine what the first audience would have thought in hearing this parable? What is the kingdom of heaven like? What is the realm where God's rule is perfect? What is that like? Can you imagine a child asking you what heaven is like? Martin Luther was asked and he said it was like a merry-go-round with golden apples and it, what a ridiculous nonsense. You need to be very careful where you get your theology. 
When Jesus was asked, he said, it's like ten virgins who went out to meet a bridegroom. Still not there. Curtis, where's Mary's nine companions? That's a bit awkward, isn't it? It would be like ten women coming out to meet one man who's supposed to marry them. That's ambitious even for our Islamic friends, is it not? I think we fought a war in this country with the Mormons over it. I mean, this would have caused the original audience to laugh. They're all vying to be joined to the King of Kings. What was their job, friends? To keep oil in their lamp, to keep it trimmed. Did they all do it? Not everybody pledged to be married did what was required to be married. See, because during the erosion period, you would take your vows, and while you waited for the wedding to come, the man would build onto his father's house, but the wife would wait at her window, waiting for him to come. And because there were shofars at Mount Sinai, usually his arrival would be announced by shofars. And because there was a mixed multitude at Sinai, usually there was a large wedding party coming with shofars. What an interesting concept that is. By the way, if you just glance at Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, what do you do to prepare? You need oil in your lamp. The parable of the ten talents, what do you do to prepare? You need to add to what he has invested in you. The parable of the sheep and the goats, you have to put into practice the words that he gave you. These were not written to the lost friends. They were written to the betrothed. And everybody in the day would have understood it. There was something that had to be done to prepare for the wedding union. We're pretty convinced if you prayed a three-second prayer, this is all that you had to do. Well, it may have been a good start, but I assure you it is not all that you have to do. Why don't we do this then? The wedding portion was called the Nisween. This is a Hebrew verb that means to carry. Have you wondered why we carry brides over a threshold? Because God said he carried Israel out of Egypt like an eagle carries its young. The Nisween means to carry. And there would be a day that he would come and he would carry you to be with him. Let's read Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 25, pick up with me in verse 6. On this mountain, wonder why a mountain? Well, God married them at Mount Sinai. At Mount Zion, he poured his spirit out into them. Wouldn't it make sense that the wedding would take place also at a mountain? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine. This is what Jesus said he would not drink again until we did it anew in the kingdom. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death. Forever, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. 
Look at their response. In that day we will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad at His salvation. On the day that He comes for His people, He has prepared the world to receive them. The lamb is lying down with the wolf. And the people have prepared their lives to be acceptable to Him. Have you ever read the 19th chapter of Revelation? It is rather shocking. A wedding feast would be seven days. Have you noticed that the book of Revelation is obsessed with the number seven? It would be announced by shofars and seven men would witness the marriage contract. Sevens are all over the wedding. Look at Revelation 19 with me. Say there when you're there. I have two more passages for you. Can you stay awake with me one hour? You'll know the difference between those who can stay awake an hour and those that can't. Some run when the soldiers show up and others lay down their lives when the soldiers show up. Oh, church, let us prepare. Let us be prepared. Is there anything more radiant than a bride on her wedding day? I mean, I'm just going to be honest because I'm a pastor, right? I have seen some ugly women that were still pretty on their wedding day. It's an extraordinary transformation that occurs. Something about that day, just be like, all the women have dropped their heads and all the guys are laughing. I'm just keeping it real. Something in your heart longs for the bride to be received as beautiful on the wedding day. When the door swung open and my wife stepped out and we were only 18 years old, I was as young and as fit and as strong as I would ever be. Looked something like Judah, only uglier. And I almost fainted. My knees gave way. Uh, I caught myself in that moment, but it was a little bit like when the Lord showed up the first time in my life and it forced me to my knees. It was not the same, but it was similar. I was taken back. Obviously, I think my wife's beautiful. It's been 22 years of marriage and her mystery just grows with me over time. I, I love her. Having said that, there is something in all of our hearts that on a wedding day we even stand... Why? For the presentation of a bride. Something in you longs to see the bride as beautiful. In fact, it's really kind of repulsive on a singular fundamental level when people don't take that seriously. I mean, it really is a bothersome thing for people not to take it seriously. Look at Revelation 19 and see if we can come to a conclusion as to why. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His saints. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Does it sound like the heavens are excited? Oh, on the day you can tell who the bride is and who the whore was. The heavens are excited. There's been a separation of sheep and goats. Those who are prepared are separated from those who were unprepared. And heaven is excited. Then the voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Now why all of the hallelujahs? Why all of the glory? For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Where did she get it? It was given her to wear. You know, the first century audience would have found this humorous. The bride did not go buy her wedding dress. The materials would have been provided by the two families, but it was her job to take what she was given and she sat at her room looking out the window making her dress. Do you see the next sentence there? It's put in parentheses in your Bible. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Why do you long to see a beautiful bride on a wedding day? Because it's supposed to represent the character that Jesus has deposited in you and what you have done with it. Hence the parable of the talents. Hence the parable of the ten virgins. Hence the parable of the sheep and the goats. What are we doing to make ourselves beautiful to Him? Does the King deserve a beautiful bride? I told you two scriptures, so I have one left. If you don't believe me yet, and if you're not mad at me yet, I want you to know a goal every single time I preach is to make you mad, glad, sad, but not leave you unmoved. If you think that I've gone too far, you're not going to like this. And if you think I've not gone far enough, perhaps this will get us there. Turn with me to Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a what kind of banquet? Wedding banquet for a son. He sent, by the way, those were always seven days. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. You ought to be thinking of Isaiah 25. You ought to be thinking of these passages. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Sounds like he dealt with the prostitute, doesn't it? Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite the bank, invite to the banquet anyone you find. 
So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and... And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing... You mean you can respond to an invitation? You can take vows. But then in between your erosion, baptism, engagement, and the fulfillment of the ages, you cannot take your responsibility seriously. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Will you be found naked on that day and thrown outside the kingdom? Or have you found great joy in the concept that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He prepared them in advance for you to do. He has given you all of the materials. He has laid it out for you. The question really is, do you deem him worth making a beautiful dress? You were trapped in the kingdom of darkness and he rescued you and brought you into the kingdom of light. And now what does he ask you to do? Walk in that light. It's not enough to receive the invitation. It's not enough to be in the flock, summer goats. It's not enough to receive a talent. The one who buried it met his Lord with a fearful anticipation of judgment. It's not enough to be a virgin pledged to be married. You must have oil in your lamp. Oh, church, has there ever been a more serious subject put in more plain terms? as simple as any wedding that you would see on any day in Israel, as simple as a light switch being on or off, light and darkness. And yet our theologians have so clouded the issue. You know, when a righteous man gives way to the wicked, it's like muddying a well. We actually think that nothing is required of us other than accepting an invitation. Could we stand to our feet?